red flags, but okay podcast beginning in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hello, Jen. Hello, Kate. This is our um, Weird Flex podcast presented by NPR. We have very chill voices today. Very chill. Very chill. We're super relaxed. I don't have a snappy intro this time. I know that I've been trying to work those in, but I just don't have one. So this is Weird Weird Flex, but okay. The podcast where we say facts to you and you get to make the independent choice as an autonomous human being if you learn them or not. So what are we talking about this week? This week, we are going to cut and run. Oh, dope. And I get to start. I'm pretty excited because you <laughs> you really, really wanted this one. I just like, okay. <laughs> okay. Full backstory. I was at an event and I was like, I really want to leave. I just want to like, just Irish goodbye it, just cut and run. And then I was like, cut and run. And I immediately texted Kate. So, because <laughs> Irish goodbye doesn't work as a as a title, so yep. I was like, <laughs> yeah, we all know the Irish goodbye is my way of doing. This, so. What do you got for so, us? Okay, I'm gonna kick things off with the classic dance move, the Running Man. She's doing it right now. If anyone's wondering in this non-visual medium, <laughs> it was made famous by MC Hammer and was originally called the Hammer. Well, I mean. Sure. Yeah. MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice, such a power team right there. Oh my God. That's, I mean, come on. The royal family, am I right? Yeah. (laughs) They would perform this dance move on the music televisions. Stop. What are you, 80? I love this. (laughs) Now, here's how you can perfect the Running Man dance move. In case you either can't do it or are unaware of what that dance move is. I just need to get better at it. Stand with your feet together. Okay, my feet are together. Arms relaxed by your sides. Okay, they're relaxed. Lift and bend your right leg, forming a 90 degree angle with your knee and the floor. I'm sitting down, but I'm doing it. (laughs) Lower your right leg, sliding your left leg backward and lifting the left heel i forgot a step (laughs) i was like all right i'm i'm doing it i guess okay so after you make the 90 degree angle with your knee we're gonna reverse then you lift and bend your arms elbows out to the sides with relaxed fists okay then you lower your right leg and slide your left leg backward lifting the left heel Mm -hmm. While leaning slightly forward onto the right leg. Push your arms down with relaxed fists. What's a relaxed fist? I was thinking that when you said relaxed fist and you were holding up your fist, and I was like, that doesn't seem relaxed at all. Like a relaxed fist to me is just a floppy hand. (laughs) Yeah. Repeat steps two and three with the other legs. So bend and lift your left leg. Then... When the left leg hits the ground, shift your weight onto it, slide right leg back before pumping it back up again. Repeat steps and steps two and three, alternating legs quickly and smoothly, typically to the beat of the music. Okay. Some extra tips. Yeah. Keep your raised foot connected to the side of the opposite leg. 
Okay. Slide your left leg back at exactly the same moment that your right foot makes contact with the floor. Mm-hmm. It's a very jumpy movement. Mm-hmm. Keep both feet parallel throughout the dance. Okay. Keep your forearms close to your torso. Quick, clean movements will give the illusion of running without moving forward. It's very exciting. That's how you can successfully do the running man dance and be the star of any party. We do know that there are just a handful of dances that if you can do them, everybody you're super popular and everybody loves Mm -hmm. you. And that is one of them. It is. I think everybody at some point in time has either like in public or in the privacy of their own bedroom done the running man. Mm -hmm. Tune in next week for the worm. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> where Jen <laughs> just does the worm and you just have to listen to her like kind of grunting. On Grunt. The <laughs> <laughs> Which the worm is like the hardest thing to do. Like the coordinated body movements to like get yourself off the ground is so hard. <laughs> I um have not watched an MC Hammer video in a really long time, but I like his like side to side shuffle dance. I love that one. Oh, but the running man is just like, that was such a cultural touchstone. Iconic. I love that. I love that. Thank you. I'm glad that You're we welcome. started off on a really upbeat, dancey type of mood because You're gonna bring you know, us down. <laughs> listen, guys, I just <laughs> haven't been myself lately. And a lot of people know that. You know, I just haven't been myself. And so I think that it's time I get back to kind of the core of who I am on this podcast, who I am as a person. So four out of five of my topics will be about death and murder (laughs) because it's really important to me as a person that that's what we talk about let's just go ahead and start this off with a mass grave all right listen when i thought of cut and run i was like this could not be more perfect for us because i know i can just claim dibs on run because kate can just go crazy with cut yeah (laughs) it is true that what like who are you you're a person who loves to run who am i a person who likes he likes death. <laughs> just death. Bodies cut up. Lots of sciencey ways and also murdery ways. Spoiler, but we will get there. But let's talk about Buffy's cut. So about 30 miles outside of West Philadelphia, born and raised, is an area called Buffy's Cut. And in I'm just going to ignore your laughter because I know I'm hilarious. In 1832. Because I, I was ready to say it. And then you, you, just, you, you just went through and I was like, Darn Immediately it. I saw the flicker of hope in your eyes that you could do something. And I just blew past it. In 1832, contractor Philip Duffy, Duffy, hired 57 Irish immigrants to build a section of railroad. Simple stuff. It happened pretty much constantly at that time. It was like the railroad revolution. What made this particular project unusual is that at the end of that summer, all 57 workers were dead and buried. And there's a train coming because the train believes in this story so much. It's the ghost of all the people who were building that railroad. So official reports from the company stated that all 57 of these workers died of cholera. It was pretty mm. common way to die at the time. It was a gross way to die and a horrible way to die, but it was common. It was during the second cholera wave in the US and without knowledge of disease vectors and transmission, it only takes one carrier and poor sanitation for it to spread very quickly through a population. The issue is that cholera, even in really rough conditions, does not have a 100% death rate. It seemed odd 
that every one of these young, virile, which I hate calling dudes virile, strong dudes immediately died of the disease before any help was ever even called for. Well, in 2009, yeah, it's a little sus. In 2009, some of the mass grave, some of the mass grave that the dead had been laid to rest in was excavated and the investigators did not love what they saw. Some of the skulls showed holes that could have easily been from a gunshot. Others seems to seem to have evidence of blunt force trauma. It became widely believed that once the cholera outbreak began in the camp, the non-Irish foreman killed the Irishman in order to end the outbreak, believing, as most people did at the time, that Irish carried more disease than Americans. Though other forensic investigators have stated that the injuries are way too old and the bones in way too poor condition to definitively say either way, it is entirely possible that this was the case. Americans did not like the Irish at that time and for the next like hundred years. Love a good historical tale Mm -hmm. about Americans hating a specific group of people. It's like every decade of American history, there's like a new fun festive way to be (laughs) like a nationalist. It's like, who do we hate today? We, well, I don't know, spin the wheel. Mm, The Irish. But yeah, that's Buffy's Cut Mass Grave, and you can visit the site to this day outside of Philadelphia. That is crazy. I had never heard of that. I hadn't either. But I was sus when you said all 57 of them had died of cholera. Cause right? I mean, 57, so. like, yeah, like young dudes. Like, if it was like 57 elderly people and newborns died of cholera, I'd be like, yeah, bad. Of course they did. Mm-hmm. Kate. It's etymology time. Oh my God. Thank God. It's about time. It's been a long time since we've had an official etymology section. It really has. Let's talk about the word runner up. I thought you were going to say running. I'm sorry. I had to interrupt because remember that (laughs) meme that I laughed at for like 25 days straight about the running was invented when Thomas running tried to walk twice. Sorry, guys. I know that telling someone a meme isn't that funny, but I think about it all the time. (laughs) Okay, runner up. Hang on. I have to um, diverge from the conversation real quick to discuss you and running because there is this great video out in the universe from kickball time where I don't even remember what was going on, but just in the background, Kate just is warming up for our game and you just, they're like, Filming like some other people talking and Kate just sprints by in the background, like running so fast. It's so like intense. So I think it was a video from KSD, a team we used to play against. I believe it might've been them. Okay. And somebody found it on Facebook or whatever, and they sent it to our group chat. But so when we would warm up, everyone else would be warming up and stretching, but stretching does only so much for me if I don't run then I will just pull everything in my body so what I would do was we would run a lap and then I would sprint three laps full speed of the field and just like every single thing I've got just all beans full speed but then the way that translates when everyone else on the field and like is like standing around talking and one person (laughs) is like Sonic the Hedgehog (laughs) in the background it looks so stupid. It's just like uh, they're just talking, and all of a sudden, Kate's just like, zoom. And then, yeah, I go like from out of frame into frame, and then out of frame again. 
Oh my gosh. Uh, sorry. That's I had to make sure that I didn't let this episode go without mentioning that. So no, no one ever think that I run slow. I cannot distance run, but I do sprint very fast. Mm-hmm. She is no runner up in kickball. That's for sure. Thank you. Actually, we were always the third runner up. We were always the fourth <laughs> best. <laughs> I was the fourth best coach every season. So mm-hmm. runner up is the person, you know, that gets second place in a competition is like the first runner up. So how did this become the way that we refer to, you know, second place teams, people. And um, even after that, well, began in 1842 with dog racing. Really? Mm -hmm. With the dog that loses only the final race being the definition of runner up. So loses the final race. Only the final race. Only the final race. So it's the dog that's ran all of the races before and kept going and then has lost the final race. The last dog eliminated is the runner. Yes. Okay, got you. Yep. Um, And it became more general in 1885 for like everybody, but it was first, the first like 40 years was just dogs. Wow, that's pretty interesting. I never even thought of it that way. I knew it more from like the pageant circle and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like what runner-up is. Jennifer, this one's very exciting for me. But oh, as a Swifty, <gasps> this one is going to... No, I, this is exactly what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> this one's going to make your ears perk up. But please remember that I am me when you hear this. <laughs> I want to talk about death by a thousand cuts. I can't wait. I love that. No, don't you? Don't you dare. Because I am <laughs> like, not talking about the kind of okay song. <laughs> no, I know. I know you're talking about like, I would assume that you're going to be talking about the actual like death. Oh, yeah. Because oh, that's what, and that's what I'm excited about because it's a great song, but like also it's great punishment to murder people with. So it's a great, it's a great murder. <laughs> one of the, one of my top five murders. I mean, yeah. What we're going to choose to torture someone. I mean, (laughs) if you do make that choice, this, yeah. Do I send multiple texts that could be sent in one message? Yes. So 100% I would choose (laughs) death by a thousand cuts as the way to go. That is an interesting way to think of it. Like, am I (laughs) annoying? Yeah, this is how I would kill somebody. We're this probably is the most annoying murder, I guess, the most annoying way to be executed. But what we're drabbling on about incessantly, (laughs) because that's what we do, apparently. Welcome to the Death by a Thousand Cuts. Death by a Thousand Cuts is this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about Ling Chi, which is my favorite ancient torture technique. I mean, come on, guys. Ling Chi is fairly unique to China. And the surrounding area that at some point was colonized by China. And it translates to slow process, though it's also known as the lingering death. Its history is long. It's been around for thousands of years, being both used and outlawed innumerable times in the last two millennia. Ling Chi was used not only as torture, but also as a form of execution for the worst crimes in the eyes of the government. And I say in the eyes of the government, because the government and I have very different ideas of what a crime is. I was just going to say, I'd like to know what those were back then for that government in particular. 
Oh, good. So the offenses were things such as treason, murdering an employer, mass murder, and murder of one's parents. Those were the main crimes resulting in use of the technique. I don't care about treason. So sorry, guys. I don't care. If you are a dissenter of the government, go for you. You know, go for you. It's the whole point. Free will. Yeah, free will. So trigger warning is going to start now. If you do not want to hear anything gory, please skip about two minutes because I'm going to tell you the details of how this particular technique was used, how it was actually committed. I'm ready. Once convicted, the prisoner would be tied standing up and nude to a wooden pole. This was usually in the center of town, but there were times when it was done like behind castle walls and stuff like that. Though there is no specifically prescribed order of operations, it was done in a way to minimize excessive bleeding so that the death came very slowly. Shock from pain would set in long before the person actually passed. Chunks of muscle would be cut away first, such as the pectoral muscles and the quads, followed by removal of limbs joint by joint working from the furthest out inward. So removing of your fingers joint by joint up to your wrist, elbows, shoulders, you know, from your feet, your ankles to your knees, etc. all the way up until ultimately you are just a torso on a stick. The final blow would come after about 20 or 30 minutes in the form of a stab to the heart or cutting up the throat. Though it will absolutely not be on the Instagram for this episode, there are very clear and intense photographs of the last officially government-sanctioned Ling Chi execution in April of 1905, two weeks before the new Chinese penal code outlawed the practice. I have seen these photos many times. They are in, they're remarkably clear for being photos taken in 1905. But you can see it. You can see what it looks like. It's if you Google Ling Chi, it's the first thing that came up. Finn, if you didn't skip, do not do that. Don't do that. You don't need to see that. You can see it when you're an adult. In these photos, you can see a man literally whittled down to just a torso with a head over the course of about an hour. So what did that guy do? Um, it was, he had uh, killed his employer, I think, who was part of the government. Hmm. Treason. I can't believe order. it was that late. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's, there's several photos floating around of, of Ling Chi and it was, I'll get into it. Though, like I said, the practice has been officially outlawed. It has still taken place with proven executions in 1936 by the Chinese Communist Party and some witnessed executions in North Vietnam in the 1960s. I will point out that if this seems archaic and barbaric to you, which it absolutely is, you're right, I will state that the last guillotine execution was in the 1970s, and Britain didn't outlaw hanging, drawing, and quartering until 1866. We still electrocute people to death in some states and have untrained corrections officers give people drugs through improperly placed IVs in others. So hot takes with Kate here, but for it or against it, I guess, all execution is barbaric. That is kind of at the end of the day, it is an eye for an eye, it is barbaric. If I had to be sentenced to death today, though, I think it would probably be in China the way they do it now, if they're not doing it through um, 
more quote unquote modern techniques, they usually just put a bullet to the back of the head. So no Ling Chi for me, thanks. I'm good. But speaking of those photographs that I was talking about and a lot of like contemporary Western accounts of Ling Chi, it was primarily used in Western media as a way to demonize Chinese people to show that they were barbarians because there was this belief that, and they would call it things like the yellow fever and stuff like that, where Chinese were basically these like torturous, mad people who were going to do horrible things that no one, no Westerner could even imagine, like hack people up in the streets. And well, it's not great. I mean, it definitely is a bad thing. And it's a very, very intense and horrible way to execute somebody. There's not a single culture that I can think of that hasn't had or currently has some sort of execution technique that is totally wackadoo, gross, nasty, torture. There's, I mean, everybody had it. But another facet of Ling Chi that kind of goes into the Chinese cultural idea of respect and the way their body needed to be disposed of and things like that is that another thing they would do is they would take all these individual pieces and they would not bury them together. So the culture at the time believed that your body needed to be buried whole. And so if it was not buried whole, if it was a bunch of separate pieces buried together, or if they would send them off throughout the you know, throughout the region or whatever, that was used as a way to basically disrespect you even in death. Mm, that makes sense. That's Ling Chi. That's uh, the, the probably one of the top five. It's not the top because the top one is probably the worst thing in the entire universe, but it's one of the top five ways I don't want to die. I will keep that noted. Thank you. I'm going to put <laughs> it in my advanced directive. <laughs> We are familiar with performance enhancers for exercising, right? You got like hardcore ones like steroids Mm -hmm. um, and then others that are just those like energy boosts, like pre-workout powders Mm -hmm. and bangs and unicorn things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, but there was a time some outrageous items were considered performance enhancers. To first look at this. We're going to jump into the way, way back machine. I'm taking us back to our roots. And we're going to go visit the 1908 London Olympic Marathon. The conditions, weather, running terrain, and distance. The course was extended by almost two miles. Made for an extremely... It was extended. That's, I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, two miles. You're done, right? (laughs) So it made for extremely harsh race. There were 55 runners at the start, but only 27 at the finish. Most quit before they ever even reached the halfway mark. Me as an Olympian. (laughs) Those that did finish had a helping hand from some unlikely sources. Brandy, champagne, and strychnine, which in simple terms is what we now know as rat poison. But back then was not intuitive to me. Back then fast. Let's get nobody poisoned me. <laughs> Back then, nobody real knew like that that it could it was you could be used for that. So the concept of providing athletes with alcohol for energy can be traced back to ancient Greece and Imperial China. In more modern instances, it was seen in competitive foot races in the 19th century. 
which we should start calling marathons and stuff, 5Ks competitive foot races again, because it sounds so silly. You need to have your mom make you one of the like, uh, like the metal things, like the the rack to hang all the medals on, <laughs> but it just say like my foot races or something. <laughs> competitive foot races. Yeah. <laughs> The competitors were encouraged to drink champagne in large amounts throughout the competition. Years later, trainers and assistants would follow runners in cars or bicycles during a marathon to give them a drink. It would just be following behind them, be like, here, need some energy? Here's a glass of brandy. That's so, that's so bizarre. <laughs> it gets crazier. Okay. Trainers had their own special recipes of alcohol, strychnine, or in some cases, cocaine or heroin that they okay, would the give their athletes. The heroin, no, I can't. The drug portion of the drink stopped in the 1920s, but alcohol and competition continued through the 1980s. The drink mixtures were popular because they would mask pain, increase aggressiveness, and help give the runners a quick energy boost. That's where you lose me. <laughs> the energy boost part. Like, what? Because champagne had a supposed rejuvenating effervescence. I wish effervescence was used more. <laughs> it seemed like these drink concoctions were working. In 1896, Greek marathon runners. Spyridon Lewis drank a glass of cognac with six miles left in the inaugural modern Olympic Games marathon before going on to win the race and get the gold. Thomas Hicks, who won the 1904 St. Louis Olympic marathon, get ready, mm -hmm. had a drink made of strychnine, brandy, and sulfate in egg whites as oh. he ran in 95 degree heat. Oh, my God. And at the 1908 Chicago Marathon, Albury Corey said his win was thanks to the steady supply of champagne. Nowadays, you can still run races where there's alcohol along the course. In fact, I've run a half marathon where somebody had a booth of tequila shots set up. But at least we know... A, don't mix it with rat poison or cocaine or heroin. Yeah. Or heroin, gosh. <laughs> and B, it's not actually going to help you win if you just chug a glass of brandy 20 miles into a marathon. Yeah. I mean, it may have helped people like not feel the pain and like yeah. blindly finish the race. But like, imagine how much faster everybody got when they weren't drunk. <laughs> So stick with those uh, unicorn bang drinks. Oh, God. Remember when those came out and like every single person at kickball was drinking those? It was like yes. the never ending flow of like bang everywhere. Bang, bang into the woods. <clears throat> so my mom is not a drinker, but when she came back from Diego Garcia when I was a teenager, she got into hashing, which is like where they would have, it was like a running club scavenger hunt mm. where they would have like hidden coolers of beer that they would have to drink along the, <laughs> the race. And I always thought that was the weirdest thing for my mom to be into because one, 
she was not a drinker. I mean, I assume she drank in Diego Garcia. She didn't just like come home and suddenly be like, you know what I want to do? Run and drink. But she was not like a big drinker or anything. Like my parents were not the type to have like a beer on the weekend or whatever when I was a kid. I think they do now, but I when I was a kid, they weren't. And so she got into that. And then she told us like, like, oh, this is how they like mark off where the things are and like the directions and stuff like that, like the symbols that they would use. And they would be in like chalk or maybe even spray paint or something like that. And then now, even as an, as an adult, I'll go places sometimes and I'll see the markings and I'll be like, ah, what a nice little thing that I know about the world that these <laughs> are marking that there's a cooler of beer somewhere near here. That <laughs> there was at some point. Fun. Fun. I cannot imagine a world where I could drink and run a marathon and be and not pass out by the end of it. Even running six miles, like, oh, he had six miles left and he drank this. Like, six miles is a lot when you're That's full of booze. And when you've already run 20 miles. That's nuts to me. What was happening? You know, I feel like it, 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 it does turn out in the end in my own brain that the reason why people weren't as good as at marathons was just because they were drunk. Probably, probably there was, I think for the 1908 Olympics, it said that the, um, the first and like second place runners were like, couldn't finish because they were drunk and they were overheated. You work all so, that time. You it fly was like, in the dinkiest plane all the way to wherever the, the Olympics mm-hmm. are. And then you get too drunk to finish your race. Yep. So I can tell you that at mile 12, when that table of tequila shots was there and it was like half the tequila was on the ground from people just running and taking the shot, it smelled so bad. I thought I was going to vomit. I bet the, I bet like the concrete was so sticky. Ugh. As a former bar employee, I refuse I don't ever want to be in a situation where I have to smell hot, gross old liquor ever again in my life. Okay. All right. Let's get back to some death, you know? Let's just do it. Let's get back to <laughs> no some No more death. rat poison mimosas. <laughs> I mean, we're just glossing over that because it's too ridiculous. <laughs> the whole rat poison thing, like, come on, guy. Who? I can't think of a single situation where any of the symptoms of strychnine poisoning or use of strychnine could translate to a positive thing i believe it was the third place runner at the 1908 that like ended up going to the hospital for strychnine poisoning and so then fourth wow. place ended up getting the getting the gold <laughs> yeah runner up time all right <laughs> so there's something about being petty from beyond the grave that is so funny <laughs> to me it's one of my favorite things in the entire world oh big same it's amazing. But what I'm going to talk about is mm, it's it's petty. It's sure petty. It is a member of someone's family actually using someone else's actual grave to be petty. <laughs> it's beyond the grave in the sense that it is the grave. Oh, I can't so, wait. So sometime in the mid-1800s, a woman by the name of Caroline Cutter passed away. Her husband, one Calvin Cutter, MD, was freaking pissed. He was, was he so a surgeon? I don't know. It, I you just can't didn't have a last name Cutter and not be like a surgeon. I, I mean, he's such an a-hole that I feel like he probably was a surgeon, an old-timey surgeon. 
<laughs> he was not necessarily pissed about her death per se, but about like a lot of stuff, like everything. <laughs> what resulted was a fairly normal sized gravestone with 150 very bitter words etched into it, covering oh, no. nearly every bit of usable space. <laughs> well. It's a site. It's a site. It will be on the Instagram for sure. The stone calls out the church, the townspeople, bureaucracy, and like the concept of honesty. As the story goes, Calvin Cutter tried to raise funds for a new church in town by asking for donations at the current church in town. <laughs> this went over like a lead balloon, as you would expect it to, and his family was asked to leave the church and never come back. During this time, church was community and not being part of it meant not being part of the community the removal from the church according to the headstone and very little other evidence <laughs> destroyed his wife and ultimately led to her death i'm going to read it but please note that this absolute novel is focused so much on his personal vendetta that it doesn't actually contain any information about his wife not even the actual date that she was born or died. It's, so, it's really just a headstone like Yelp review. Yes. Yeah, so um, you will see the pictures on the Instagram, of course. But imagine this on like a normal sized headstone. Okay. And it's going to mm -hmm. go on for a while. Here, here we go. Caroline H. Because, you know, she doesn't have a, her own name. Caroline H. Wife of Calvin Cutter, M.D., murdered by the Baptist ministry and Baptist churches as follows. September 28th, 1839, age 33. She, this was not when she died, by the way. This was the date that he got mad. Oh, geez. Yeah. She was accused of lying in church. She was, this is word for word, even if it seems, if it seems like the grammar's weird, it's not me, it's him. It's Calvin. She was accused of lying in church meeting by the Reverend D.D. Pratt. It has these people's names. By the oh Reverend D.D. Pratt and Deacon Albert Adams was condemned by the church unheard. She was reduced to poverty by Deacon William Wallace. When an ex parte council was asked if the Milford Baptist Church, by the advice of their committee, George Raymond, Calvin Averall, and Andrew Hutchinson, they voted not to receive any communication on the subject. The Reverend Mark Carpenter, we're like seven people in at this point. I'm like, I'm like more people? <laughs> There's a lot of reverends. The Reverend Mark Carpenter said he thought as the good old deacon said, oh, he's getting sassy. We've got Cutter down and it's the best way to keep him down. The intentional and malicious destruction of her character and happiness, as above described, destroyed her life. Her last words upon the subject were, tell the truth, and the iniquity will come out. This was all <laughs> on a headstone. Oh, my gosh. And the headstone itself is like, because, so headstones at this time in the mid-1800s were often, like, very elaborate and would say, mm -hmm. well, maybe they would have a little poem or they would have a cute picture or, you know, it would be some some way decorative, like a rose or something to show like, oh, this was a mother, this was a wife, this was a, you know, a, a dedicated person to her family. But instead, there's no decoration. It's just this. Calvin sucks. 
Imagine having to be the person that has to carve that into the headstone. I know. I'm imagining, which I know isn't true, that Calvin did it himself. <laughs> it's all like really like uneven. And it's day. slanted. It's yeah. <laughs> And it's like well carved. It's not just like, it's not like a crazy person etching with a knife. Like it is actually carved as a headstone would be into the headstone. And I mean, all these years later, it's difficult to read because it is an old headstone, but it you can read it. It's psychotic. I can't wait like, to write a paragraph yelling at somebody on your headstone one day. To just call it like, like seven people. I mean, I don't gonna... like a lot of people, but like on my headstone and it but the, here's the thing too that kills me it's not his headstone <laughs> it's not it's his wife's and he didn't even wife. like and uh. he it puts a date and an age on there and it's not the date and age she died it's the date and age that people got mad at them <laughs> it's it's psychotic but yeah that is the story of caroline h cutter apparently um the wife of Calvin Cutter, MD, who totally sucked. And I bet Caroline was great. I bet she was a super cool person who just like put up with her husband being a nutbag all the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe she died because she hated him so much. Maybe. Maybe she mm -hmm. died of embarrassment. Oh my God, I would. Let's talk rum runners and ghosts. All right, here we go. During Prohibition, the coastlines were excellent spots for rum running and speakeasies to restock. One spot in particular had, had an ideal location for Canadian rum runners. This is called Frank's Place. Really What's original. Frank's Place. Located on a cliff above a secluded beach, it was pretty easy for people to smuggle in some whiskey to the waiting cars. And of course... Frank himself took some of that, that whiskey. Now, Frank ran such a good political and social game that his speakeasy was never raided and he was able to continue on long past prohibition. The restaurant still stands and is currently known as the Moss Beach Distillery. And it's located in California. I forgot to say which coast we were on. We are on the West Coast in California. I was definitely imagining it being East Coast. I was imagining it being like yeah. Nova Scotia. But excellent location and food is not why we are visiting this place. No, we're going because there's a ghostly woman from the rum running days who still hangs out there. This is the infamous blue lady. Oh, not there's a color always. There's a color. I You know, you don't hear blue often. No, it's always like a red or white dress, but mm -hmm. the blue is nice. She was a woman that frequented Frank's place, and she always wore blue. What if I said she always wore red, but they just called her the blue lady because it was a colorblind person who named her. <laughs> she met a handsome but dangerous man who played piano in the bar. He has a name, but she didn't get a name, and her husband didn't get a name, so I'm not giving piano man a name. The two fell in love despite the woman being married to another man. One day, her husband came and confronted the lovers, but was tossed out by the bouncers. Later, while the couple was walking along the beach, the husband found them and stabbed her in the back, leaving her dead, and knocked the lover unconscious. Why not stab the lover, too, if you're going to be such yeah. an awful person? Because then, who would the blue lady be looking for at the restaurant? She's wandering around looking for her lost love. 
Yeah, you have to set up for the per- when you commit yeah. a murder, you have to set up for that person to be a ghost later. It's yeah. like the rules. Ghostly experiences like phone calls from no one, levitating checkbooks, locked rooms from the inside when they have no other way to access the room, diners mm. losing one earring only for the restaurant staff to find them all in one place a week later, mm-hmm. tampering with computers, and of course, sightings by small children because children all things can that happen to my 11 year old so if you go to the moss uh, by Los, moss beach distillery <laughs> or frank's place mm-hmm. enjoy a drink or two and you may just witness the ghost of a blue lady i love it i would love to i would love to go visit the ghost of the blue lady but i have to add something mm-hmm. that i can't overlook um when you said Frank's place and that the owner was named Frank and like just talking about Frank all I could think about is the fact that every time your neighbors have cats you don't know the name of they're named Frank mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm just imagining it's great it's run cat. by cats <laughs> just imagining the owner of this place is a cat just some mysterious cat and some neighbor cat it's in a window plot twist okay. it's my neighbor's speakeasy it's your neighbor's cat speakeasy <laughs> that's interesting so, um, I will give a disclaimer in my research, I only saw it on one random website, and I don't even remember what it was, but this restaurant's been featured on a couple different shows, you know, Most Haunted, Terrifying mm-hmm. Places to Travel and stuff. And one of them did say they found stuff that, like, set up to make ghosts, ghostly things happen. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't find that on anything else, so I don't know if maybe they just had that up for, like, a gimmick or they have like one one claim as a gimmick or something, you know, to play into it. Okay, so, so they had like a they had like a, a mechanism set up to like make mm-hmm. a spooky noise or something. Like yeah, that. Okay. but I only saw that on one thing, and it didn't even specify what it was. Oh, but well, it, no, I, I, I want to say it was was it Ghost Adventures? Which one's Taps? It's whatever one Taps is. I I feel like it because Ghost Adventures <laughs> is. Is Zach is Daddy Zach? Mm-hmm. It's the other like, one, I think. Then what's yeah. the other one? Ghost? Yeah, because yeah. he because he plays into all of the things. Like it's pretty yeah. unusual for him to be like, "Hey, there's this isn't real." Yeah, it's the other one. Then I think okay. whatever I can't think of what it's called. But apparently, when they went, they had some sort of mechanism up to do something. The article did not give very many details. And obviously, I did not watch the episode. Are you trying to tell me that a ghost might not be real? I mean, I if I owned a restaurant that had a haunted history, I would play into it for for views and publicity. Yeah, of course. I mean, and and also, like, is it illegal to pretend there's a ghost somewhere? Like, I wouldn't do it, but like, it's not illegal to pretend there's a ghost. Yeah. I mean, the Haunted Mansion does it all the time. It's like their whole thing. It's their whole thing. Yeah, that's like their whole gimmick. All right. We're going to talk about weight loss. It's it's a cruel joke, frankly. The more you want it, the harder it gets. And it's usually a very long process when done in a healthy way. Cue fighters cutting weight. The most (laughs) unhealthy possible way to lose weight. Yeah. Um, I will trigger warning for anybody who has an eating disorder. 
maybe skip this one. There's a lot of trigger warnings in this episode. Yeah. So if you have an eating disorder, please skip this one. So an MMA fighter, this, so there's a lot of different like combat sports where they cut weight, boxing and wrestling and all sorts of stuff. But I'm going to kind of circle in on MMA because there's a lot more like contemporary writing about it. An MMA fighter could cut as much as 30 pounds in the 48 hours leading up to a fight. Wow. That is hard to comprehend. I know. As someone who That's like a small child. 30 pounds, <laughs> gladly, I don't get it. But how do they do it? You can't lose fat that quickly. It's simply impossible. It just doesn't work that way. Metabolism doesn't work like that. They do this the only way that you can lose tons of weight extremely fast, and that is extreme dehydration. They will cut so much water weight and put themselves into such extreme danger to reach their fight's weight class that they cause themselves ongoing health issues and possibly death. But why? If they don't... Why? But why? Tell me why. If they don't make that then why not just fight in a higher weight class of what they actually weigh? Building muscle demands nutrition. Building tons of muscle, enough perhaps to get strong enough to punch someone almost to death while they are also trying to punch you just as hard, demands a whole lot of food. This means gaining weight. The entire training process works more sl- more well, the entire training process works more smoothly when you aren't dieting. That means that by the time a fight rolls around, most fighters are sitting at a little heavier than their weight class, than their weight class, and some of them quite a bit heavier than their weight class, actually. In combat sports, weight can have a huge advantage. Let's look at some examples. In MMA, there are 14 weight classes from straw weight at 115 pounds to super heavyweight at everything above 265 pounds, and it's all in increments of 10 pounds. So for example, I weigh 145 pounds and fall into the featherweight class. I don't currently diet at all. If I train my butt off and turn as much of my fat into muscle as I possibly can, I'll still fall into that same general area of my weight class. If I were to have this muscle and suddenly weigh 125 pounds, I could get weighed and then chug a bunch of water and eat a cheeseburger and then fight someone smaller. The plan falls apart in two places. So the first one, if I am losing 20, if I am losing 20 pounds to fight someone else who also lost 20 pounds, and then we both regain 20 pounds before the fight, then why did we both work so hard to lose that 20 pounds? It's pointless. Why didn't we just fight each other at our actual weight? It does not make sense. Why not just fight at featherweight like God intended? The second place it falls apart is that it is actually killing people and it has for a while. Weight cutting has almost become an addiction of some fighters and it's a really grotesque source of pride. There's a lot of fighters that you'll see who are like posting pictures of them cutting weight and it's hard to watch. They're sitting in saunas for entire days they're going complete no food or liquids for like 48 hours straight sometimes they'll go several days of not consuming any liquids they're really really dehydrating themselves and it's very dangerous in just a cursory google search i pulled up 25 fighters from around the world 
who died specifically from cutting weight in the last six years. And that doesn't include the ones with life-altering kidney and liver problems and the difficult-to-escape eating disorders that cause physical and psychological problems that will sit with someone for life. There have been calls to outlaw weight cutting, but since it's not officially sanctioned, it's pretty hard to outlaw it completely. People will still do it, they just won't be so public about it. And I just, deep at the core of it, kind of don't get it. Like, if you're wanting to fight, it just doesn't... I mean, if you are a, the type of person who is a like a combat sports fighter and you do get it, please explain it to me because I don't get it. Like, if I wanted to be an MMA fighter at the weight I am now, I would just fight in featherweight. It doesn't make sense. Someone make this make sense. <laughs> Basically, I just don't get it. Like, I why go through all the trouble to cut all this weight? And I know that they like sign up for fights in certain weight classes and stuff, but like, so you aren't that weight. Sucks to suck, nerd. It's fine. Like, I just don't, I don't know. I don't get it. I also don't get it. Is cutting weight, I'm sure within female fights, it's probably still a big issue, but does it, is it harder to cut the weight? Yeah. As a woman, a female fighter? I don't know. Um, I don't know. There's a whole lot of interesting things about women in fighting and stuff like that because there is this kind of like dichotomy between the women who are very feminine and strong and the women who choose to be more masculine and strong Mm -hmm. and like body composition and all that stuff because a lot of people because I mean obviously like what you look like does not necessarily show anything about your strength and so if you look at like the um, like Thai fighters like Muay Thai fighters some of these women like they'll just look like generally strong women but they will be able to kick your face right off your head Mm -hmm. and it's kind of just a training thing but in I've noticed that in like MMA and stuff like that a lot of these women do choose to be much more muscular um obviously not all of them but um it is an interesting thing but i've i have seen there is one particular female fighter that i have seen i cannot remember her name off the top of my head but she is one of those people that really glamorizes the cutting process Mm. and she takes like a huge amount of pride and like oh look i lost like 28 pounds in two days and and everyone's like that's so dangerous and she's like yeah but, but it's so cool basically and it's to me, it's sad. One, it's sad. Mm-hmm. As somebody who has been kind of a lifelong sufferer of eating disorders and like body dysmorphia, it's super sad because it's also something that like their trainers are teaching them to do. Yeah. And the fact that they see it as such a necessary part of the job, it's almost become like, okay, well, you work out, you work out, you train, and you go through all the pain and work of training. And then two days before your fight, you cut a ton of weight. That's just part of the job. And then you get weighed and you're shaking and you're frail and you're pathetic and you're disgusting. And then you go chug a bunch of water and then eat something and then you go fight, you know, like for all the beans. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's like with the bodybuilding competitions, how like 24 hours beforehand, they can't like eat or drink anything. I I do kind of get it because they are trying to look extremely lean. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's stupid. I absolutely think yeah. it's stupid. And, like, if you are a, a But that a at least makes sense. Like, I don't feel bad about saying that. But at least um, they're going for a, an aesthetic. Could you imagine going 48 hours without drinking anything 
Like just that feeling you get, you know, when you're like so thirsty and you don't have water and you're just like all you want is to just chug like a glass of water, but you can't for two days. According to the time signatures, it's been about 20 minutes since I drank water and I'm so thirsty. (laughs) I've like, I just drank right before you started. And I'm like looking after hearing that whole like section, I'm like, God, I just want to chug my water right now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and it is an eating disorder. It is 100% yeah. an eating disorder. And um, oh, here's the train. The train hates it. <laughs> Must be a recording <laughs> night. Um, <laughs> there it there's is. There's the horn. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, ah, oh, I sense that there's a baby around here sleeping. <laughs> Plot twist. Olive's up in her uh, bedroom doing the honk oh motion gosh, like you do to truckers. <laughs> She's in her window. <laughs> but... There it is. Yep. All of a sudden, I'm your horn. Yeah. Just the entire, the entire cutting thing. And there's, there's a lot of different parts of like fight culture and stuff that are like unbelievably toxic. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you see people who are different. Like there is one like notable fighter who like always, he doesn't, he, he fights at his weight class that he is actually in. So he doesn't cut. And it's, it's like, and he's a super, super lightweight guy anyway, but it's you know he's just like well this is what i weigh like when i'm in my best shape this is what i weigh and i've it's never made sense to me why everyone doesn't do that like don't you want to be in your best shape and like oh i'm in my best shape and then i lost 20 pounds of water weight and then i just drank a bunch of water or you could just not do that and fight in your own actual weight class that you weigh or hear me out you fight in your own weight class that you weigh and you just down a glass of brandy and strychnine right before your fight. I actually think you're onto something here. <laughs> well, whenever you're going through rat poisoning, like strychnine poisoning, you do vomit quite a bit, right? So there's a whole other eating disorder. This is why I called for the trigger warning. <laughs> yes. It's awful. But yeah, it's a really grotesque thing that I am very much I'm gonna I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna be really controversial and brave. I'm against it. I'm against it. Yeah, I know. I said it. I said what I said. You heard you me. You said what you said. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to bring us up. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Let's Even be it's honest. Nine things I come up with. <laughs> running 26.2 miles can get boring, especially if you aren't running somewhere cool, right? Okay, yeah. I agree. So if you're listening to this podcast and thinking to yourself, self, I really want to run a marathon, but I don't want to run just any old boring city marathon. Then you're in luck because I'm going to share some of the wild and cool and unconventional marathon races out there. But right after I let Bandit outside. Thanks for waiting in suspense. I immediately chugged a bunch of water. (laughs) First up, we're starting big. You can run a marathon in Antarctica. Ooh. It may cost you over $10,000, but you can do it. Yeah, because in this situation, (laughs) I am a billionaire. Yeah, obviously. If that's a little too costly for you, though, but you Mm -hmm. still want to go somewhere really cool, how about the Great Wall Marathon? Oh, see, I I am one of these people who would run a marathon if it was something that cool. Well, I hope you like elevation gains galore and lots of stairs, because that's what you're in for at this race. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, if money is an issue and you're not really into the stairs, but say you need to cut some water weight and so you want to sweat it out, well, you can do the Petra Desert Marathon. 
Oh, no, I'm out on this one. <laughs> it takes you through the deserts of Jordan to the ancient cave city of Petra, the Wadi Rum Desert, and the Dead Sea. Fascinating. I'll just go to Petra, thanks. <laughs> the next one, the Liwa Safari Marathon in northern Kenya has a course that runs through the Liwa Wildlife Conservatory where you can see plenty of wildlife along the route. So wildlife, including lions, like lions, just right there, not behind like a cage or anything, (laughs) which would be really cool. And maybe you would get a PR because you're like, oh my God, I'm terrified. (laughs) You're actually running from lions. Now, if say none of these sound challenging enough for you, you can do (laughs) what is considered one of the most difficult races in the world. The Jungfrau Marathon, which is essentially 26.2 miles up into the Swiss Alps. Oh, no. The view at the finish line I've heard is amazing. Yeah, I bet it is. I bet you can also, like, take a train there. (laughs) Now, say you've already run the Antarctic Marathon, right? Down south, you've done that one. You want to get one up north, right? Knock Knock out both. Well, the North Pole Marathon has you covered. Ten loops around a base camp on a giant slab of frozen ice that Santa Claus calls home. Now, this last one, I 100% have to do it. Like, no choice. It's hilarious. It sounds extremely frustrating, but I have to do it, right? Okay. It's the Burrow Days Marathon in Fair Play, Colorado. Yeah, sounds about right. (laughs) During this marathon, you have a donkey with you from start to finish. Oh, my God. Like, you have to lead it? You have to lead it. (laughs) (laughs) Can Joe be on the donkey the whole time? (laughs) This is my burrow burrow. This is my burrow. The most frustrating marathon, probably. So those are some unconventional marathons. Which one would you do if you had to pick one? Oh, that's really tough. So I think like view-wise, this money's no one. Yeah. Money's no object. Skill training's no object. You could do it easily. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think like view-wise, the Swiss Alps, the Swiss Alps one would probably be the most beautiful. If I'm trying to go for like an accomplishment, I would probably do the Great Wall. I've also always wanted to go to the Great Wall, but I think that like by the end of that, you probably feel pretty accomplished also. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do the North Pole one because it sounds boring and like there Mm -hmm. would be nothing to look at. You're just running around an outpost, right? Yeah, literally. Just 10 miles. Just doing it to say you ran a marathon at the North Pole. Yeah. Yeah, that's boring. I'm not doing that. Antarctica, I want to go to Antarctica. I really do want to go someday, um, but I don't think I need to run there. I think once I get there, I just eat Pringles inside. That's the one I think I'd want to do is the Antarctica one. Just, just to be able to say, like, I ran a marathon in Antarctica? Yeah. That's pretty cool. There is one marathon I've always wanted to do. Um, I will say that I also have never run a marathon. <laughs> but I would train for a marathon and run a marathon to do this one. To do the uh, Halfling Middle Earth movie set marathon in New Zealand. Oh, yes. I'll do it right with you. Let's me. do it. But this is my wedding ring right here that I keep in this box that I don't wear. <laughs> this is my wedding ring. It's a um, 
a replica of the Lord of the Rings one ring. <laughs> and it has the engraving on the inside and outside. But I would take this with me and I would run from the Shire and I would run up and I would drop it in the fake <laughs> volcano. All right. I know what we're doing next year. That's what I want to do. <laughs> drop my wedding ring in a fake volcano, but I have to run from the Shire to do it. Yeah, um, obviously. Well, that, I mean, I've always wanted to run a marathon, but one of the things I will say that has held me back is that one, it's hard Two, none of them. And also they're like cost prohibitive to me because mm-hmm. I don't want to spend that kind of money on running. Another thing is that it, there has not been one that I have like had access to that has struck me as something where I'm like, like, this is worth it to me. You know, I agree. There's a couple, there are some really cool ones that are in a city. Like mm-hmm. um, there's one in Detroit actually that you run on a bridge into Ontario and then you run in the tunnel under like a lake back into Detroit. I'm like, that would be kind of cool. But then you have to run through like Detroit for other parts of it. And I just feel like it's probably like any old boring city. Yeah. I think for any portion of a marathon, there's a part where you're just running through some stuff. Like some downtown city that you're like, oh, that's great. There is one that goes around area 51. And I'm just saying. How does stuff like that get allowed? Like the people, like the dude in the Air Force who work at Area 51 are like, they're doing it again. It's happening the again. coolest place that I have run a half marathon is, of course, Disneyland. Yeah, I knew. I knew immediately <laughs> that it's like, whenever you were like, oh, here comes another train. Must have been 15 minutes. It wasn't even 15 <laughs> minutes that time. It was not. I did not talk for 15 minutes. Yeah, that was the same topic. I'm calling bunk on these trains. Oh, this one's going a different direction. It's 15 (laughs) minutes per direction. Uh, Okay. It's Um, a great location, my apartment. Yes. The article that I referenced for all all of these was, um, did list Disney World as one of them. I have done two in Disney World. I've done more in Disneyland. Um, And I have been used in a runner's magazine. My mom, a photo of my mom and I has, have been used to advertise the race. Well, the races. She, I mean, you, you guys are like prolific race runners. <laughs> so basically famous, famous running magazine article. So yeah, she's that was me. Yeah. Still have to pay full much. prices for all the races. So running. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a big deal. She is inspiring in how much she runs. I will say that. Oh, thanks. I'm going to wait for this train to pass. I'm yeah. some water while I wait for this new hell, this new fresh like, hell to I'll disappear. talk about other runs. There was one in Everest where you have to climb like 17,000 feet before you even get to the course. So and I am just... um, vehemently against anyone going to Everest. Yeah. I'm super, super against Everest. I think the entire idea of climbing it, it goes against like the adventure spirit because it's something that's been done a bajillion times and you're basically mm-hmm. just doing it to prove that you're rich enough to do it. Yeah. And it's stupid. It's stupid. You're putting yourself and lots of people and Sherpas and all this kind of stuff in danger. Mm-hmm. Mountain that is sacred to people. Can you stop um, just pooping on it for, for a second? It's funny because there was, I just saw the like a meme with the Simpsons where Homer's being carried by like two Sherpas overnight, like up a sled up what I'm guessing is Mount Everest. And he's like, man, look how far I went. Yeah. I've gone and he didn't do anything. And it was like rich people be like, 
Yeah. That is what it is. It's literally what it is. I would love to do – see, I – to me, it's not so much running. It's like hiking stuff. Mm-hmm. That's it's there was ostensibly a, the same distance, just over a longer period of time. There was one in Peru – that was they were like it's basically a hike. It's not an official marathon, but it's like, call it like a trail miles. run. A trail yeah, run. of of hiking through all the different like ruins and temples. Wow. See, that would be cool. I just can't mm-hmm. do it in a prescribed amount of time. I just want to do the hike. Could you yeah. imagine if you tried to run that, the amount of altitude sickness you would immediately die of? Oh yeah. <sighs> oh my god, the headache. Uh-huh. I have a headache right now thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's too much. All right. Now that that train is gone. Yeah. That train's gone. We can stop talking oh. about marathons, which I I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about. We have an episode just called Jen Talks About Marathons. Just Jen Talks her, About Running. <laughs> I'm going to let her go ham. Okay. So I'm going to finish off with some silly like cinephilia as a treat for sitting through my death-filled magnum opus. So let's saw. talk about. We're going to talk about saw. No, we're not. We're not going to no. talk about saw. Which actually, I'm going to curl up my leg real quick because now I'm thinking about my Achilles tendon. This happens every <laughs> episode now. Because the way I sit, I'm sitting in like a old tiny wing back chair, but I have my feet mm-hmm. up on like the edge of my bed, and it just perfectly exposes a lot of tendons. To we need like we need to take um, shin guards for soccer, but put them on reverse. <laughs> Turn him backwards. Well, all of volleyball pads are in my room right now. <laughs> pads, I'll just turn backwards. Start walking around with like metal plates. <laughs> These are my podcasting pads. <laughs> it's very important because Jen triggers something very dangerous inside of me. Okay. But we're going to talk about director's cuts. So I love a director's cut. Speaking of Lord of the Rings, I will happily watch the 11-hour Lord of the Rings trilogy director's cut over the traditional (laughs) films any day, which we've now established that I am weirdly obsessed with Lord of the Rings. But why do they exist? Why Why? do we need? Why? 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 If you are the director, why didn't you just make the movie you wanted to make, right? Like the reason (laughs) seems kind of silly like you're you're directing a movie just make the movie right you idiots how dare you think that the reason is because directors are often cuckoo bananas artists and they have very grand and sometimes long and expensive ideas for the films that they've devoted years to and that doesn't always translate to box office quiche as often as you'd think the studio will look at a movie a director made and they will say, this will not make money, but then they invested so much money. They've got to milk out money. Everything's about money. So they will change the movie. And that's how you end up with director's cuts like two years later that I buy immediately. (laughs) Let's take Blade Runner, for instance, Ridley Scott had a very specific film in mind and producers and studios said that the general public will not love it or even get it whenever they saw his vision. For one, his film did not have a happy ending. There will be some brief spoilers. I think there's like two spoilers for movies that came out more than 20 years ago. So (laughs) if you are worried about these spoilers in these movies, I don't feel bad for you. Like I'm not, I'm just warning you that it's stupid if you're mad someone spoils a movie that came out decades ago. 
Like, just go see the movie anytime in the last 20 years. <laughs> I don't, I don't, it, like, if I spoiled something that came out yesterday, I'm so sorry. Like, that's terrible of me. If it's a movie you just didn't bother to see, that's on you, dog. Like, that's not my fault. This week's care. episode is sponsored by Hot Takes with Kate. <laughs> I, I have been a little bit too civil lately. I'm really coming back <laughs> to my roots over here. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. For one, his film did not have a happy ending or a voiceover leading the watcher into the narrative. The entire film is tonally different. Another great example of a completely tone of a complete tonal shift is I am legend in the film. The creatures are the baddies, like the dark seekers or whatever their names are, are the baddies. Like they're the ones chasing Will Smith and he's trying to create you know, he's trying to do experiments on these baddies to figure out how to cure, how to like cure them so that he can save the human race, whatever. In the director's cut, it is revealed that Will Smith's character is actually considered the baddie by the creatures because they are now what inhabits Earth and he is abducting them and doing experiments on them. And they are seeing him as the bad guy in the movie. And it actually makes for a much better film, in my opinion. And oddly enough, I think there's like a three minute difference between the t- the cuts of the theatrical cut and then the director's cut. And it's a totally different movie. It's actually pretty cool. So there are hundreds of examples of films that directors make or wanted to make being chopped and screwed in the editing room by producers to create a completely different film. What is your opinion on the matter? Directors cuts where we can see the movie as it was intended to be seen or like theatrical release that is created to be more widely watchable. Which, what do you think? I prefer director's cuts. I think it's funny that they're like, here, the audience is not going to love this. And it's just like joke. And then the director's cut comes out and everyone's like, this was so much better than the original. Like directors typically know, especially if they're going based off of like a book or something, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they kind of know what to do. So like if they're based off books, which is where I feel like a lot of these types of um, cut, like, cuts and stuff happen is when there's a pre-existing story to follow you know comics Mm -hmm. books the directors typically do a lot of research or they have their interns do a lot of research for them to make sure that it's true and faithful yeah for sure i think also there's like a ton of bureaucracy involved in some of the movies especially with like bigger productions and stuff and I always want to go back whenever I think of director's cuts that I want to see or movies that I want to see I always think of the um, first David Ayer Suicide Squad movie Mm -hmm. because the movie that he made and the vision he had and the movie that came out that was like widely panned by like everybody which by the way I don't think it's that bad but the movie that he intended to make was a completely different movie. And, well, yeah, and and that's yeah. the thing is when you cut and paste and take parts out of the movie, you lose the vision that the director had, mm-hmm. and so things don't always make as much sense because yeah. that's not they didn't film that movie. Yeah, and like in the case of that movie in particular, I mean, what it came down to is Jared Leto, who I can't stand. But what it came down to is that the basically there had been this giant expensive deal with Jared Leto in order to set up 
future DC Joker movies and they needed to really heavily include him and he made zero sense whatsoever in the storyline, but they really needed to heavily include him. And so they added all this extra stuff with Jared Leto and they, it made the film really dumb. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it, and it really like everything from like, even just the tone of the movie was completely different than what David Ayer wanted to make. And it kind of destroyed, I mean, not kind of it literally destroyed his career that movie. I mean, it became, he became a laughingstock. He also did never, didn't ever want to direct again, that kind of stuff. And I mean, I remember James Gunn saying before he directed the new Suicide Squad movie, which by the way, I didn't like, um, love James Gunn, love the idea of the movie. I just didn't like the movie itself. But James Gunn said that like, it was very important to him that he got a co-sign from David Ayer because he felt like Suicide Squad was ultimately his movie and that he felt really bad that he knew that David Ayer made a good movie that no one would ever see because mm-hmm. the producers ended up taking all of this footage and making their own movie out of the footage that that he had made for himself and I think that that does probably happen more than we even realize it because he came out and said stuff about it but I bet most people don't mm-hmm. you know don't say anything and like like Ridley Scott in the case of um Blade Runner I mean even so they have got like the the theatrical release the director's cut and then the final cut of that movie and because when they put out the director's cut Ridley Scott also was not able to decide what was in the director's cut which I thought oh, was geez. really funny so it wasn't until the final <laughs> cut came out way later because you know like I said in his movie you know there's so many different things that were in there that he wanted you know it was a totally different movie and everything but mm-hmm. one of the things also is like it really like heavily plays into like a lot of these you know, like end game ideas of like, oh, is, you know, this guy a replicant and all this kind of stuff. And like the studio was like, nobody's going to get that. And he's like, no, trust me, people are smarter than you think. And everyone was like, yeah, that's stupid. No one's going to get it. And I feel bad for directors in that sense. I don't often feel bad for mm-hmm. directors, but I feel bad for them in that sense that, like you said, they spent all this time researching and, um, you know, picking a writer that they really believe in to write mm-hmm. a screenplay and, you know, really, really spending all this time, you know, developing something and being the captain of a ship just to have like somebody stupid, like a Harvey Weinstein come and stick their thumb in it mm-hmm. and say like, you know, actually I'm really good at movies and I've decided that this is what the movie needs to look like because I've seen movies before and I know what people like. <laughs> Maybe you don't, you know. Maybe you don't because it turns out most of the time people like the director's cut. That's true. And especially if it's like a cult movie, um, some director's cuts like uh, the Lord of the Rings movies and stuff like that are considerably longer. I think each Lord of the Rings movie is a, is between 30 and 45 minutes longer in the director's cut. Um, but a lot of director's cuts are maybe a couple minutes longer. Some of them are even shorter. Some of them are just, it's just different. The scene, just four or five scenes are different or something mm-hmm. like that. So, um, but I do, I do want to see the original vision. I would rather see that than, uh, some something that I was intended to see in a theater. And uh, I know with Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson said, well, you know, I felt like people didn't want to sit through as much travel time, essentially. They didn't want to sit through like, and they're walking and they're walking and they're walking, which is to me, I like to watch the director's cuts because if you read Lord of the Rings, that's all the books. That's are. all they're doing is they're walking. <laughs> it's so much just walking. Like that's all the books are. So to me, it's just like, well, I read these books. I can sit through an extra 30 minutes of them walking through a forest. But uh, yeah, that's all I got for you. 
All right. Well, shall we do Citation Street? We shall. And you start as you start. And before I do that, I wanted to point out that Spotify now lets you rate podcasts on it. So make sure if you're listening to us on Spotify that you go in and give us five stars if you like us. If you don't like us, you should also give us five stars so that more people can listen and not like us or like us, you know? You should just give us five stars. Yeah, give us five stars so that you can start buzz so that people can start talking about how much they hate us. Yeah. Um, and do it <laughs> on Apple, in the world. podcast, iTunes, wherever you can review us, review us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to get that out there now that Spotify just recently started doing that. So. Yeah, that that's I mean, good call because I am an I am a Spotify person. I listen to everything mm-hmm. on Spotify and I really don't sorry i don't look at i don't look at like apple and all that kind of stuff so like um i am probably going to go in and just frantically start reviewing all my favorite podcasts now including myself (laughs) yes i have been doing that all right so if my verbal description of how to do the running man was not helpful you can go to liveabout.com for um images and videos oh good and the written description Etymology Online, bringing it back with runner-up. The history of alcohol as a performance enhancer for marathons is from Atlas Obscura. And the Moss Beach Distillery website gave us the history of the Blue Lady Ghost. And lastly, Runner's World from Runner's World Magazine, where yours truly has been featured Gave us the unconventional marathons to put on your bucket list. When talking about Buffy's Cut Mass Grave, I got that from Hidden Silly, Hidden City Philadelphia and Love of My Life Smithsonian Magazine. (laughs) Death by a Thousand Cuts, that came from the book Death by a Thousand Cuts, which is actually really good, and Our Lady Wikipedia. Caroline Cutter's gravestone came from, let me scroll way past this gigantic paragraph that her <laughs> husband wrote. That came from Atlas Obscura and findagrave.com. Death by weight cutting came from USA Today and Huffington Post. And director's cuts came from Empire Online. If you have ever been killed and put in a mass grave for spreading cholera, if you have run an unconventional marathon, which is probably more likely to be something one of you has done, <laughs> please let us know. We love to hear from you. Even if you just have a maybe a topic you want us to do, if you have something that you just found really fascinating, please send that to us at weirdflexbutokgmail.com or follow us at weirdflexpodcast uh, on Instagram. And I don't know why I said the wrong email address. This is like the fifth time I've done that. It's weirdflexpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. I, my brain doesn't work today. It, by the way, it's midnight. <laughs> <laughs> this kept getting um, delayed by internet outages, dogs needing to be let out in trains. Yeah, it's just a little bit of everything. And the letter Q. And the letter Q. And um, <laughs> if last week's episode is any indicator, I can absolutely cut 45 minutes out of an episode <laughs> and it still is an hour long. But uh, thanks for listening, guys. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.